Well, what a great and glorious thing it is to be able to come and praise and worship our God. What a wonderful God he is. He has gathered us together in hearing the word of God preached and praised and sung. So much so that I was super excited to read his word this morning and failed to read a schedule. So <laughs> anyway, we're going to be in Psalm 3, page 448 in the uh, Bible, at least the uh, church Bible. So Psalm 3. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me and all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to, to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Praise be to the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. The entrance of your words give light. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, search us, O oh God, and know us and see if there is any offensive way in us and search it out with your word and lead us in the way everlasting. Help us to receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls and satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in the midst of a sermon series, Five Weeks in the Psalms, and I've entitled the series Quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase meaning before the face of God in the presence of God, which is what the Psalms teach us to do, to live all of life in God's presence. And this morning, we are going to look at Psalm 3, which is the second. We're really considering different topics as we interact with these psalms. And the first two sermons, well, really the first sermon in the series was intended to kind of be an umbrella, uh, umbrella sermon that kind of covered the whole series, which is commitment to live in God's presence under God's word for God's glory. And then these first two weeks, last week and this week, we're kind of considering the, the hard side of life the more difficult things that we encounter as God's people. Just because we're God's people, we're not exempted from suffering. In fact, we sometimes take on more as a result of our identification with Christ. So we're considering um, conviction of sin, what we talked about last week from Psalm 51, and this week we're going to consider crisis and difficulty and trials that may have nothing to do necessarily with personal sin, although in David's case it certainly does uh, this morning. And then the next couple of weeks, um, Lord willing, and weather permitting, you know, tis the season, so we'll uh, leave that in God's hands, but Lord willing, we'll be considering um, the positive care of God and confidence in God that we can have, even in the midst of confessing sin and, and struggling in the midst of life. So, Lord willing, Tim Hoke is going to come next week and, and preach from a psalm. I won't disclose that just yet, 
for the sake of your uh, anticipation. And then we'll come back at the end of January, and I'll conclude the series um, with a look at, at confidence in God. So that's where we're headed. This morning, though, we're going to take up the theme of crisis, which means we're going to look at a psalm of lament, a psalm of lament. We've looked at two aspects of life in the presence of God so far by looking at two different classifications of psalms. And the first classification of psalm that we looked at at the end of December on the brink of the new year was a psalm of meditation in Psalm 1 where we looked at the theme of commitment to God. Last week we looked at a psalm of contrition or penitence, repentance, which is Psalm 51. And we studied the theme of conviction of sin and how to process that in God's presence. And this week we're going to look at a psalm of lament, Psalm 3, and look at the theme of crisis and how we process crisis with God. Now the psalms of lament, I, 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 w- I think, are not uh, talked about as much in church as we need to talk about them. They are, an, they are a major part of the psalms. In the laments, I, I think there's a reason that we don't talk about them a lot, because they make us uncomfortable and they make us ask questions. And they unsettle us because we read things in them that sometimes are shocking and sometimes are difficult to understand. But I am convinced that the Psalms of Lament are a great medicine for the soul for the people of God and need to be discussed and unpacked and thought through more carefully. Because in the Laments, we've got an emotionally realistic and brutally honest prayer of wrestling with the pain and misery of life. And the psalmist questioned God directly over and over again on why he is allowing such suffering to take place. The psalmist struggle mightily with temptations to bitterness, paralyzing fear, and even despair. And this is what I like to call uncensored prayer. It's unfiltered. It's straight from the heart. Even when we have no words to express our anguish, the psalmist teach us that we can still lay our hearts before God. He expects us to come to him for refuge from our grief, from our fear, and from our pain, and not to dull those emotions or seek to kill them with amusements or distraction, which can never really deliver us from our pain and misery. And the good news of all this, brothers and sisters, is that God welcomes us to come to him in our crises. He welcomes us to come to him with our questions and our doubts and our fears and our despair. This is part of the heart of God that we want to reflect as a church. We want people to feel okay to fall apart. In fact, we put this on our website and we've got it on our Facebook page. It's not original to us. This came from a uh, church in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian, they used to open every, I don't know if they still do to this day, but they used to at the time open every worship service with this invitation. It's, they said, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who are worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church open wide, opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. A similar heart 
abides in another pastor that I respect. His name's Ray Ortland. He pastors in Nashville, and he's getting ready to wrap up his ministry at Emmanuel Church. And I've put a tweet up here that I want to read for you. Check out this. He put this out last Sunday. He said, Sunday, 1030 a.m. at Emmanuel Nashville will be a flyover of 2018 with one focus. Come to me, all who weary or labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All exhausted people are welcome. Controllers and winners won't enjoy it at all. Fourth, 4301 Charlotte Avenue, Nashville. Do you love that? And that because he knows God and he knows the people that Jesus calls to him. Jesus does not call the winners and the conquerors. He calls the nobodies and he calls those who are broken and in need of a savior. And that's who we want to call to Jesus. And that's who God is calling to himself through Psalm 3 this morning. So we're going to get into that now. Now, I want to outline the content. The outline of the content of the psalm is not necessarily going to be the outline of my sermon. I'm going to try to get down underneath the sermon a little bit more and preach more in an applicatory way, and I'm not going to be necessarily mining out every single verse. But I want to do justice to the psalm by at least giving you its basic content before I begin uh, teasing out some application from it. So first of all, I want you to see this. There's, there's kind of four key parts to Psalm 3. It's a very easy psalm to outline. It's a very easy psalm to understand. So verses 1 and 2, we have David's problems. These are the problems that David is encountering in his life. And this, the subscription, superscription above the psalm says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So it gives us the context for these problems, which we'll talk about momentarily. So verses 1 and 2 is David, David's problems. Verses 3 and 4 is David's protection. He's seeking protection and refuge in God, which is what we should do when we're encountering problems. And then verses 5 and 6 is David's peace. This is the peace he receives from seeking protection in God's presence. And then verses 7 and 8 is David's petition. It's his prayer that God will arise and deliver him from his enemies. So very simple, isn't it? It's a very simple outline. That's not going to be the outline of my sermon, but I gave you an outline that could work for this sermon. And it's a very understandable way. What do we do when we encounter problems? We seek God's presence and rely on his protection, which brings peace from God, and then we begin to make requests of him to deliver us. So, David's problems, verses 1 and 2, David's protection, verses 3 and 4, David's peace, verses 5 and 6, and David's petition, verses 7 and 8. Now, my outline's a little bit different from that, and I want to just talk about two things this morning that I think are on, that, that are a part of the essence of this psalm, which is the inevitability of crisis and difficulty and problems, and the opportunities that crisis affords us as a unique part of God's plan for every one of our lives. So we're going to look at the inevitability of crisis that God is going to send it into our lives. We are going to experience difficulty, trial. As Job says, man is born into trouble as the sparks fly up upward. And as Jesus reminded us, through, and Paul reminded us in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But what opportunities does suffering provide us that are unique and God-designed and can only really bear fruit in our lives in the midst of those sorts of crises. I think that will be very helpful for us to consider this morning, especially as we encounter crisis in the way that we process what God might be doing in our hearts through it. 
So first of all, let's look at the inevitability of crisis. And I think we just see it in the first couple of verses. We see David, a man after God's own heart, God's king, experiencing great trial. And he says in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So many foes, much opposition, no hope. At least that's what they're telling him. So let's review the context of this psalm. It's always helpful when we get a context. We don't always need one, but we got a context here. And the context is David's fleeing from his son Absalom, which is recorded for us in 2 Samuel verses 15 through 18. We're not going to take time to read all four of those chapters. Let me just give you a flyover of what's going on in David's life at this point. Remember, David is the great king of Israel, God's chosen man to lead his people politically. His military ability is legendary. He had extended Israel's power to neighboring areas and conquered regions that no king had done previously. He was fabulously wealthy. He was living in a palace of breathtaking splendor with his many wives and his many servants and children. But then David sinned, as we saw last week, and recorded the fallout for that in Psalm 51. He had sinned with Bathsheba, the wife of, his, of a military commander named Uriah, and he ordered the death of her husband. And although David consequently repented when the prophet Nathan came and confronted him, David's sins set in motion a series of God-ordained devastating consequences that even carry him up to this psalm. Psalm 3 is still David receiving consequences from his sin from Psalm 51. He is still receiving the consequences and the fallout from that transgression. Now the backstory is that David's oldest son is a man named Amnon, and he rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and Tamar's brother is Absalom who took revenge and murdered Amnon. This is all in David's family. Absalom then flees because he knows he's been guilty of murder and he's going to be killed. So he flees into exile for several years, and David refuses to see his wayward son. The resentment begins to build, and Absalom begins to court the disgruntled people in the kingdom, offering himself as a more sympathetic leader than his powerful father was. So finally, Absalom begins to to piece together a conspiracy against his father David, that he's to be trusted and his father is not. Now David realizes that in order to survive the coup that's underway, he has to flee from the capital immediately. And so to add insult to injury, a man named Shimei from the family of David's predecessor, King Saul, came out as David's passing by and he's cursing David and throwing stones at him and accusing him of being a worthless man who had brought about his own downfall by being a man of bloodshed. This is David's most traumatic, humiliating experience of his entire life. Everything that he had spent his life working for is suddenly unraveled. Many whom he thought were allies and friends had abandoned him and sided with his rebellious son. And the most painful wound of all 
was the treachery and betrayal of his son Absalom. It brought home to David his own failure as a father. One son was murdered, a daughter was raped, and the murderer was now after his father. In addition to his father's kingdom, life is literally falling apart for David. So it's in that context, as he's out of the city, fleeing from his son Absalom in his pursuit, that he writes Psalm 3. So can you understand why he says in verses 1 and 2, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul like Shimei, there's no salvation for you in God. You're under God's curse. You're under God's judgment. What do you do when you're in a situation like that? It's an awful situation. I mean, we could get pharisaical and say, well, he's reaping what he sowed. You know, he deserves it you were a righteous man like me, you wouldn't experience God's discipline like that. But no, we don't, we don't, we don't get that way. Because we know, but for the grace of God, go we. You better than David? David was in a man of incredible faith in God. And he was a man of incredible sin. And we see here a man who is at his wit's end, completely broken by the difficulties of life brought upon him through his sin. But I want to talk about two basic ways that David's enemies are opposing him, which I think are the same ways that we can learn from as well. First of all, he's getting attacked. And second of all, he's getting accused. You see that? In verse 1, he's getting attacked. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. There's people coming after me. There's people that want my head, want my life, want my kingdom. But also... They're accusing him, saying in verse 2, there's no hope for him. There's no salvation for him in God. I wonder what sort of crises you're facing or have faced recently. Are they spiritual, financial, emotional, relational, physical, familial, vocational? No matter what crisis you're facing externally, I want to put before you this morning that what makes the crisis worse is the internal struggle that often accompanies the external crisis. In summary, almost all suffering that comes to us as God's people has these two dimensions to it. There's an attack and there's an accusation. And I would argue that oftentimes our greatest crises come from attacks and accusations from Satan or his assistants. All believers, we all as Christians, have to deal with the accuser himself, Satan. His job is to attack and accuse, to make you doubt that God can love you, care for you, or give you any sort of salvation based on what you've done. Satan may use human beings to shake your confidence in God's commitment to you, or he may attack directly, psychologically, assaulting your confidence with inappropriate guilt so that you look weak and foolish in your own eyes. And in this sense, all Christians always have a formidable enemy who's seeking every day to say to us in some way, God's salvation is not adequate enough for you. God will not deliver you, and God will not save you. 
Tim Keller says, just as spiritual accusation accompanies Companies troubles when they come into your life. It's quite normal to have some major setback in your life and find that it's accompanied by severe doubts about God's love for you or about the legitimacy of your hope for his care and commitment. Ever been there? Ever experienced setback and difficulty and trial and immediately began to question, is all this real? Am I even a Christian? Does God love me? It's very normal for God's people to experience those things. So how do we fight back against attack and assault? Well, here's how not to fight back. To seek to control the circumstances yourself. This is how not to fight back. This is what Matt Smethurst says. He's a writer for the Gospel Coalition. He says, the achievements of modern life have given us an ever-increasing sense of control. Think about this. If anybody had control, wouldn't you say it's David? I mean, he had resources at his disposal, armies that he could put to action. But that's not where he went. That's not what he did. He ran. Now, part of the reason he ran is because he probably was thinking, there are more people that are against me than for me. So I don't know if I could put an army together that would be loyal enough to me to actually help me get through this. But ultimately, that wouldn't do him any good either, even if he had a massive army. Matt continues and says, Actually, more than a sense of control, we really do enjoy more control over aspects of life than ever before. Without realizing it, this increasing sense of control can begin to feel natural, intuitive, right. Not a gift, mind you, a right. Addicted to what we can control, we extend the borders of our kingdom into realms we can't control. We try to control circumstances, but trials rudely show up uninvited. We try to control people, but they don't stick to our wonderful plan for their lives. We try to control our future, but he who sits in heavens always seems to laugh. End quote. But that's our natural default. Our natural default is when we encounter accusation or attack or trial or difficulty, we try to control the situation ourselves. That's the danger. That's the opportunity that God is giving to us in the moments of our crises. Who will get the reins? Who will have the control? Who will be allowed to lead? And so that's the, that's, the, that's the inevitability of crisis. And now we're ushered into the opportunities that crisis gives to us. And I want to talk about three of them this morning, okay? So we're not going to respond as though we have ultimate sovereignty and we have ultimate control. We're going to respond how David responds and see what we can learn from his example here in Psalm 3. So three, Christ, three opportunities that crisis provides for us. Here's the first one. Crisis provides us an opportunity to find our idols. Crisis provides us an opportunity to find our idols. There is nothing that will reveal to you more what you trust than when hardship comes. 
When hardship and difficulty and attack and accusation come, nothing will reveal what you trust in more than that. You are stripped emotionally, and you are left with what your heart really looks like. And it ain't always pretty, I know from experience. Crisis provides us an opportunity to find our idols. Where do, where do we see this in Psalm 3? I want you to look at verse 3. This is David's first saying, coming out of this call to God. I'm being attacked, I'm being accused, verse 3. But you, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, my glory. My glory and the lifter of my head. Why does he say that God is his glory? Well, we don't know for sure. He doesn't tell us. But I think there's a couple of assumptions we can make. Do you think he's recognizing that other glory has been stripped from him? That he was a glorious man. He had great power and influence and wealth. And now all that looks like it's going away. Derek Kidner, a commentator on the Psalms, writes, My glory, when David says my glory, that's an expression to ponder. He says it indicates the comparative unimportance of earthly esteem. See, David realizes that he has allowed his people's approval and praise to bolster his self-esteem. He walked with head held high as the king of Israel because of his acclaim and his popularity. And now he's downcast because he had made something else his glory besides his relationship with God. That's what led him into sin in the first place. Bathsheba is my glory. She's the most beautiful thing. She's the thing I want most in life. And so he trades glories. Trades God's glory for created glory. That's what all sin does. Every time we sin, we're doing that. Every time there's sin, we're guilty of idolatry. We're turning created glory or from creator glory to created glory. And that's what David did. Now, This is enormously important as we learn how to process our suffering and what God is doing in our suffering. When something is taken from us through a crisis or a difficulty, our suffering is real and valid. But often inside we are disproportionately cast down because the suffering is shaking out of our grasp something we allowed to become too important to us. It was just a good thing, but now it's become a God thing. It had become too important spiritually and too important emotionally. And we look to it as our glory. We look to it as that which gave us worth. The reason we could walk with our heads up. We may have told others, Jesus is my Savior. The reason uh, his approval is what matters and his opinion is what matters most to me. And his service is all that matters. But functionally, when crisis comes, we realize we got our self-worth from something else. That's what David realized. In David's case, he realized that that something else got shaken that he never would have known was there had suffering not come. 
In David's case, he realized that he let popular opinion and earthly esteem become too important to him. By recommitting himself to finding God as his glory, something that can only be done through prayer, repentance, and worship, we see him growing in courage and resilience. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the application here, and I want you to remember this when you're going through crises. God intends you to see your idols. Our crises help us recognize what good earthly things have become too important to us and have functioned as our glory. So if God takes the house out, if he takes the car out, if he takes the family out, if he takes the job away, you are right to grieve. You are right to be broken. You are, it's not, we're not Gnostics here. We don't believe emotions don't matter. Nothing of that. We don't stuff it. But in time, it is not our glory. And we are not looking to it for our ultimate identity. Our identity is not wrapped up in those things. If God takes those away, we haven't lost ourselves. Suffering threatens those things. And therefore, it gives us a unique opportunity to make Christ our true glory again and again and again and again throughout our life, whether that suffering is small or whether that suffering is major. We can always look at trials and the things they take away and in the end say, I don't need you to survive. I need God. And that's all I need. So crisis provides us an opportunity to find our idols. So let the searchlight be turned on when crises come. Let God search your soul and see if there is any idolatry present. And let him be the good physician in that area of your life. And let him do the surgery, whatever he needs to do, to reinstate his glory as the central thing in your life. Because all too often, we don't know if it is until suffering comes, and then we discern it. So that's the first opportunity that crisis provides for us, and that's what David sees. And this is the good news, is that God is eager to take us and to put his glory and to lift our heads and to protect us and defend us in the midst of that. He doesn't say to us when we come to him, see, you're just an idolatrous mess. Get out of here, you filthy person. No. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know why you're weary and heavy laden? Because you've had alternate glories. Come here. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take, here's my yoke. Here's my burden. You've been carrying the wrong one. Here's my yoke. Here's my burden. My yoke's easy. My burden's light. Come to me. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. So that's our God who meets us in the midst of our crises and helps us search out our idols and then receives us even as we are discovering them afresh. Second opportunity that crisis provides for us. Crisis provides us an opportunity to hope for judgment. To hope for judgment. When do you want to go to heaven most? When life is the worst. Right? And shouldn't we have that desire all the time? Shouldn't we constantly desire God's presence, God's people forever? Yes, 
But do we? No. Hence, crises. The great gift of God to us to help us long for what we should long for. Which is not happiness and hope here. It's not here. It's there in Emmanuel's land. And that's what crises give us. An opportunity to hope for judgment. Not in a negative way. We'll talk about that in a minute. But a a fixing, a writing of the universe. A return of Jesus where all sin will be done. And all brokenness and death and decay will be eradicated from the universe. And we will dwell in God's presence full of joy and peace forever. And this is why David prays the way he prays. Look at verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you will strike all my enemies on the cheek. You'll break the teeth of the wicked. Now, that's what we call an imprecatory prayer. Okay? These are very common in the Psalms. We, you'll come across them. Sometimes whole Psalms are just devoted to prayers of imprecation. Sometimes they'll just have parts or verses in the Psalms. And all of a sudden you'll hear this psalmist crying out for judgment. Now what are we to do with that? What are we to do with prayers like that? Well, let's talk about that. These are prayers where God is asking, or where people are asking God, to punish, restrict, destroy the wicked. And for centuries, Christians have tended to confuse, ignore, or despise these sorts of requests. So what are we to do with them? Well, here's, here's a couple of things. On the one hand, God, when we call out to God for justice in a world that is unjust, we are doing what is most natural and which is most right, which is to call out for justice to be done in our world. Because God's holiness and God's justice are important. Therefore, the heart behind these requests is absolutely right. We must not recoil and dismiss prayers like Psalm 3-7 as though they're primitive or even uh, self-interested or unworthy of God. It's a plea that God will do what he has promised to do in the end, which is destroy evil and remove everything that harms others and defames his glory. However, on the other hand, We know that the psalmist did not fully understand what we now understand. This is a particular time in redemptive history, before the coming of Christ. David, in a sense, longed for God's Messiah to come. He knew that God was going to send a Messiah, a greater son of David, who would come. But he didn't get to see him in his lifetime. But now, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-Jesus, we understand, first of all, a couple of things about prayers like this. First of all, if God brought judgment, we'd be doomed. We're among the wicked. So we understand, like we prayed this morning in Psalm 130 when we sang right before I came up, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? We'd all be lost. And because he poured out his judgment on Jesus instead of us, That means that we live right now in this age of redemptive history in a time of greater mercy that will be followed by greater judgment. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. This is the day. Now, in a sense, 
All days have been days of grace. God has been inviting people to come to himself and receiving them, just like David, not on the basis of their works. Nathan told him, the Lord's put away your sin. We talked about that last week. David didn't have to earn his way back into God's favor. God received him, forgave him. He's been treating people with grace all along. He started with Adam and Eve. But today, according to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. These are days and times marked by God's patience, where he does not desire anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He desires to lavish people with prodigal-like love and receive them freely into his family. In other words, we live in a period of time where people can repent of wrongdoing, can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and can find forgiveness for their sin. However, because evil must have a solution, there will be a judgment day. And on that day, either Christ's work will be revealed as paying for our sins, or it will be revealed as not paying for our sins, and we pay for them. And until that day, though, brothers and sisters, the gospel logic compels us to pray for our enemies, to wish them good, even if we are opposing their deeds. So how do we pray something like this? We pray, arise, O Lord, save me, save others, save people who are not worthy of your salvation. And I thank you that in the end, you will strike all of your enemies on the cheek. And you will break the teeth of all the wicked who have refused to come to you. But until that day comes, even while we oppose the deeds of our enemies, we must pray for them and we must wish them God's best. We cannot feel superior to them. We don't pray these prayers out of a sense of superiority, nor do we hope that they personally pay for their sin. We should hope and pray that, for an example, Kim Jong-un never has to pay for his sin. Never! We want it wiped clean for him to stand fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's one extreme political you know, example. But there's lots of other personal examples. Take that person who's offended you deeply and you don't like them. Just don't like them. And they're not a Christian and you don't really want them to become one because you kind of want them deep down to get what they deserve because they hurt you. That's what I'm talking about. You, don't have, you shouldn't feel that way. You should pray against that and desire to wish them well and to have God's blessing rest upon them. When we have only been given grace and we've been exempted from paying for our own sin through the work of Christ, we should want that for everyone. But we know that in the end, God will not let evil prevail whether people repent or not. So my point is, is that when we encounter crises and difficulty and pain, it not only gives us an opportunity to locate and find our idols in a way that we didn't see, but it also provides us an opportunity to long for heaven in a way that we didn't before. And that's God's gift to us because it reminds us what life's really all about. Life's really all about his glory and it's really all about his presence and living there forever. Thirdly and finally, crisis provides us an opportunity to trust in God, to reestablish God as our fundamental trust. Notice what David says here. He says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield, a shield about me. 
Now, this is not one of those little shields. Well, let me come back to that in just a second. I want you to see the response that this gives him from having God as his shield. Look at verses 5 and 6. Don't you want this? This is fantastic. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. (laughs) I love that. I mean, how many of us have had thousands of people against us? Thousands. And he's not talking about just a thousand. He's talking about many thousands of people who want him dead. And Absalom reigning in his place. But he says, no, I'm going to go to bed in peace and I'm going to lie down and I'm going to go to sleep because God sustains me and I won't be afraid. Now, how did he get there? That's the question. How did he get there? He got there because he's trusting in God. Now, what is he trusting about God that's getting him to have sweet sleep and getting him to be not afraid, even though tomorrow uh, a commanding officer from Absalom's army could be knocking on his little cave door and say, come out, we got you. Why is he not fearing? Well, he's got God as his shield. That's the first thing that comes to his mind. You are my shield. He's in the midst of a military situation. Absalom's army's coming after him. He's got his men with him. He's, he's gearing up for battle, but he recognizes that his men aren't his shield. God is his shield. He's not going to Joab and saying, Joab, strategically, we've got to figure out how to do this. Okay, go kill him. Okay, don't kill him. I don't know what to do. No, he's just saying, God, you're my shield. You're my shield. You're my ultimate defender. Now, think, think about this. This is not one of those like little shields he's got on his arm. These are battle shields. They're not little shields that are used for hand-to-hand combat. They're full-length shields the size of a door that's used to ward off arrows when an army is approaching a large group of people or a castle or something like that. So the soldiers hold it in front of them as they walk toward the fortress. Literally nothing could get past it to harm the the bearer of the shield. So he's got this full body shield that he's holding up. Now, this does not mean, and this does not promise, that no one will be be able to do anything to cause us pain or damage. This cannot be a promise that no one will ever be able to rob us or cheat us or put a weapon to our flesh. But what this does promise is that any pain that does get through God's protection will only be a part of God's protection. Any arrows that come to us and hit us in the soul or in the heart are part of God's long-term defense plan. God is always shielding us, whatever happens to us. If we suffer here, it's only to shield us from something far more damaging elsewhere. Better to have a life full of trial here and get to heaven than a life of comparative ease and go to hell. So if we lose something now, it's only to shield us from losing something greater much later. Many Christians can testify that an episode of severe suffering led them to see their flaws, their sins, and their need for God that almost literally saved their spiritual life. And they thank God for the wounds that he inflicted. So the promise here is not God won't let you suffer. The promise is even if he allows you to suffer, he is shielding you from the intentions of your enemies and Satan himself. It's the assurance that no one can truly harm you because God is your protector and defender. 
all things work together for them who love God and are called according to his purpose. So how can we know? How can we know that God will be our shield? How can we know that he won't forsake us? And with this, I conclude. First, we can know that the Lord won't forsake us because he sent Jesus Christ to be our shield. Think about it. A shield protects us from taking the blows that should fall upon us and destroy us. And yet, the shield absorbs them. How does the shield protect you? It protects you by substituting itself for you. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He has stood in our place and took the arrows of God's wrath and judgment that we deserve. He took all the legitimate accusations out of Satan's hand. Satan can no longer, the only thing Satan can ultimately accuse us of is sin. But those sins are paid for and forgiven. And therefore, according to Revelation, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. That is our confidence in the work of Jesus for us. We know that God won't forsake us because he forsook Jesus. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying that so we would never have to cry that out. God cannot get two payments for your sin. Therefore, he can't forsake you. It's not that just he won't, he can't. There's no legitimate reason why he should ever let you go. He's not going to let you go. There's no reason. So I have a question for any of you here this morning who are not a Christian. What are you going to do about your sin? That is the one thing that God will forsake you for. But he has provided someone whom he forsook so that if you will forsake your sin and cling to the one whom God forsook, he won't forsake you. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus in your seat this morning. Cry out to God and say, I don't want to be forsaken for my sin. I deserve to be, but you forsook your son for me so that by trusting in him, I will forsake my sin. You will not forsake me. Secondly, in Christ, we are holy and blameless in God's sight, despite our spotty record. So we can know, brothers and sisters, that Christ is literally our glory and honor before the Father. And if we have that, we won't be overthrown by accusation because we're not our own glory anyway. We're not our own honor. We're not the lifter of our head. Jesus is. Jesus is our glory. Jesus is our shield. Jesus is the one in whom we trust. As the old hymn goes, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Why another hymn says, Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered by thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. I close with this. Human history is a long story of God's unbroken faithfulness to scaredy cats. He's never failed one of his own. So don't be so arrogant as to think he might somehow end his streak with you. He won't. Has he not been faithful to you, brother and sister, over 10,000 yesterdays? Well, then you can trust him for tomorrow and the next day 
and the next day and the next day until he brings you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to spend some time thinking about the crises in our lives and the difficulties that we encounter and the trials that we face and the opportunities that those trials and uh, difficulties uh, give to us. Um, Help us, God, in the midst of the difficulties that you send to trust your hand and to trust your heart and to know that as you send them, you intend good for us. You intend us to help us, to help them, to use those trials to help us see our idols and long for heaven and the day of all things new and to reassert our confidence and trust in you alone. May they always do that. Don't leave us to ourselves in the midst of our trials. Apart from your grace, we would be as beasts before you. So don't let us be beastly, but come to us and refresh our hearts and remind us and speak peace to our storms and say, have no fear for it is I. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.